0: It's great to see you here today. I'm Steve Hammer. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you. And uh, we are in the midst of a series called, Actually, That's Not in the Bible. And we are looking at some common Christian slogans that we hear all the time, and that we sometimes hear people quote and say, well, the Bible says this, or Jesus said this, but actually, they aren't in the Bible, Now, Pastor Seth did some research, and he discovered that this isn't just a Christian thing. This isn't just a Bible thing. He said that there are people who have heard some things, who quote some things, who believe some things to be true in our society that really aren't, and it's hard to convince them that what they believe isn't true. There's a name for it. It's called the Mandela Effect. It began when it was discovered that many, many people erroneously believed that Nelson Mandela died in prison in 1980. And some even will tell you that they watched his funeral on television in 1980, that they saw his funeral at that time. And uh, the only problem is, Mandela actually was released from prison. He served as president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999, and he died in 2013, several decades after people believed that he died. And so some use this term to indicate that they have had A different experience. I mean, they believe this about a number of different things. This isn't just about Mandela, but they believe that they've seen other things, and they believe other common things, and some of them are common. And they use this term to indicate that they've experienced an alternative reality, that uh, they have traveled to an alternate universe. Now, when I get something wrong like that… I just think I have a faulty memory, but I don't know. Maybe I've been traveling to alternate realities instead. But in this series, we're looking at some of the Christian sayings that some people insist are on in the Bible, and let's face it, as Christians, we love our slogans. We love to use certain phrases. I mean, we hang them on walls, and we put them at the bottom of our emails, and we post them on social media. We love our slogans. And many times the accuracy of our slogans doesn't quite match what the Bible says. And sometimes that's really not a huge ordeal. But sometimes phrases enter our popular Christian conversation and they just stick. I mean, you begin to hear them everywhere and read them everywhere and see them everywhere. And often people begin to assume that they're in the Bible. And some of these phrases are not only not biblical, but they can be harmful. They can be harmful. And I think that is the case with the one that we'll look at today. What we're looking at today is love the sinner, but hate the sin. We hear that all the time now. It's probably the most recent of the slogans that we'll be looking at in this series. I don't remember hearing it before the 80s or the 90s, but now we hear it all the time. I've heard it referenced, uh, referencing several situations. I've occasionally heard it used in discussions about people who struggle with an addiction to drugs or to alcohol, And I've heard Christian parents use it uh, who have a child who's living with someone who they aren't yet married to. I've heard them use this phrase, but probably its most common use today is when Christians are discussing homosexuality and the LBGQ uh, community. And um, I did some research on the history of this. Some point back to the time of Augustine, an early church father from the fourth or fifth century, and they say he used a similar concept 1600 years ago. He was apparently writing a letter to some nuns, and the nuns that he was writing to apparently were being too flirtatious with men in the village. And he was writing in Latin, and he uses this phrase. Uh, that says, I love you nuns, but I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. It was basically a form of love the sinner, but hate the sin. And uh, others would point to Gandhi's 1929 autobiography. He was arguing for greater compassion, and there were Indian people at the time who were really angry uh, With corrupt law enforcement officers, and rightly so, but Gandhi is telling them to be careful that their anger doesn't overwhelm them. He says, Be careful that your anger doesn't overwhelm you. Remember, we are all human. We can love people even if we disagree with what they're doing. So while we may see a hint of it in Augustine and a hint of it in Gandhi, guess where you will never see the phrase in the Bible? It's just not there, and I've talked to people who believe it is in the Bible. I talked to one person after the last service who's going to go home and look because she's just sure that she's read it there, and many people have quoted Jesus directly as saying that, but he didn't. Now, let's spend a few minutes talking about what people are trying to express because there is some truth contained in this statement. So I want you to spend some time understanding the truths people are trying to express. The first truth is God hates sin. That's true. God hates sin. The Bible does say that several times. God doesn't like sin. That seems obvious. Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 16, it's not in your notes, but it tells us that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And then in the next few verses, it lists seven different sins that are detestable to God that God hates. And so God hates sin. He has a certain desire. He has certain plans for our lives. And when we walk in a way that's contrary to that, Scripture says he doesn't like that. In fact, it says in several places that God hates sin. So the concept of God hating sin is present in the Bible. But the second truth is, God loves people. God loves people. On nearly every page of the Bible, you will read about God's everlasting love, God's undying love for us, about how he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die to forgive our sins. And so the concept of God loving us, God loving sinners, is also in the Bible, and both of these concepts, being in the Bible, is what confuses some people. It's what throws them off. I mean, they wonder how God can love us and hate us at the same time, how God can love us and hate our sin at the same time, and it doesn't seem to fit together, and so we come up with this slogan, love the sinner but hate the sin. And we see it in the way that we treat people. I mean, we get that we can love people while hating what they do. I mean, talk to the parent of a drug addict and they will make it clear to you that they love that child completely but they hate what they do. And that, that just, that part makes sense to us. But even though it makes sense, I included this phrase in the message series because I think it's dangerous. I think It's dangerous. I think when we use it, it ends up communicating some things that we don't mean to communicate. So let's look more closely at it. Let me answer today two questions. The first question is this How does this slogan get it wrong? How does this slogan get it wrong? Again, I know people who use this slogan mean well. I know that they really do, but their motives are probably good. But I think the slogan itself gets a few things wrong. First, when we say it, we often get sin wrong. We often get sin wrong. When we say love the sinner but hate the sin, we usually are not thinking right about sin. Here's what I mean by that. I know it's really convenient for us to think that we are all good people who sometimes do bad things, that we're great people, we're good people who do bad things, but Sin isn't just bad things that we do from time to time. It's different than that. It's bigger than that. It's more complicated than that. Sin not only infects our actions, but it infects our thoughts. It infects our attitudes and our spirit. You see, according to the Bible, sin isn't just what I do. It is who I become. It isn't just what I do. It's who I become. Due to our fallen nature and the fundamental brokenness inside of us, sin becomes part of us. We become slaves to it. It holds us captive. One of the most graphic confessions about this comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Look at what it says there. We know that the law is spiritual, But I am not spiritual, since sin rules me as if I were its slave. I do not understand the things I do. I do not do what I want to do, and I do the things I hate. Yes, I know that nothing good lives in me. I mean, nothing good lives in the part of me that is earthly and sinful. I want to do the things that are good, but I do not do them. I do not do the good things I want to do, but I do the bad things I do not want to do. I think all of us probably could have written those words. I I know I could. I know I could. I mean, um, I really want to do the right things. The things I know are right, I really want to do those things. But sometimes I don't. And the things that are wrong, the things that are sinful, I really don't want to do those things. But sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. You see, sin isn't just what I do. It is who I've become. It is who I've become. And I want to change that, and I'm letting Jesus work in me to change that, but still, sin is a part of who I am and it's a part of who you are so because sin is a part of us when someone says love the sinner but hate the sin it's hard to hear anything but condemnation it's hard to hear anything but disapproval in that because it isn't very easy to separate out what people do from who people are and because what we do and who we are just becomes tangled up this is a really dangerous phrase sometimes hating sin feels a lot like hating the person we may mean to express love but often it isn't heard as love at all But the phrase also gets sin wrong in another way. It overlooks the fact that Jesus never called us to be sin monitors. Jesus never called us to be sin monitors. Maybe the most dangerous thing about this phrase is it implies that it is the job of every Christian to monitor the sin of other people. That I'm supposed to investigate your sinfulness so that I can hate your sin while I'm loving you. And if you feel like it's your job to monitor sin, let me remind you that God doesn't need your help on that. He doesn't need your help on that. Jesus made it clear who would be our sin monitor. It's the Holy Spirit of God. That's the part of God that comes and lives inside of us when we cross the line of faith, when we become a Christ follower. Here is what Jesus said about him. And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convince the world of its sin and of the availability of God's goodness and of deliverance from judgment. It is the Holy Spirit who will convince uh, the world of its sin. His job is to point out my sin, the sin in my life, and to motivate me to change. Now, the Holy Spirit uses several means to do that. I mean, he may use talks like this one, or he may use someone who knows us well and loves us deeply to help us see the sin in our lives. And he most often uses... Communication from God, what we call the Bible, to point out his truth to us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, to teach us. The Bible also teaches that the elders in the church are given the task of church discipline. It's their job to help people who are sinning come back onto the right path. It's also their job to protect the church from the spread of sin But even then, when the elders are taking this role, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convince people of their sin and to turn them back to God. So when I say love the sinner and hate the sin, it implies I have the job of looking at you as a sinner and monitoring your sin. And folks, that just isn't true. That just isn't true. So one way the slogan gets it wrong is it often gets sin wrong. The other way that it gets it wrong is kind of ironic and that is when we say this we often get love wrong we often get love wrong the statement seems to say that god only loves the good side of us but that he hates the bad side of us and he loves us but he hates what we do and that isn't what the bible says Look at what it says. I love this verse from Jeremiah 31. Actually, we sang part of it earlier. It says this, and from far away, the Lord appeared to his people and said, I love you people with a love that will last forever. That is why I have continued showing you kindness. God's love for me is a forever thing. It's a forever thing. He continues to show kindness to me all of the time. And when I sin and When I don't, he shows me kindness. He loves me. And again, uh, look at the verse that we looked at last weekend from Romans chapter 5. But Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And by this, God showed how much he loves us. God showed how much he loves us by loving us while we were still sinning. God doesn't just love the good parts of us while hating our sin. He loves us even while we're in the midst of sin. And that's a totally different understanding. And it's a much more beautiful understanding, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Even while you are doing sinful things, God is actively loving you. While you're in the midst of doing things that disappoint God, he is actively loving you. And that is another reason the phrase love the sinner but hate the sin is dangerous. It implies God loves us and hates us at the same time. And when we really believe that, when we think that God loves us and hates us at the same time, we begin to have this battle inside of us. We begin to wonder, is the good part of my life uh, strong enough and winning enough that love wins? Or is the bad side of my life so deep and so bad that hate wins which side is winning and we kind of have this picture of God with the balance of our good and our bad and it becomes a very work righteousness thing and scripture is really clear on this scripture is really decisive on this god doesn't walk around trying to balance his love for us and his hate for us he doesn't walk around doing that way doing that at all he loves you completely he loves you completely completely he says that he loves you with an everlasting love there is nothing that you can do that will change that He proved his love by sending Jesus to pay our price while we were still in the brokenness of our sin. God chooses to love us in spite of our sin. He chooses to love us in spite of our sin. And yes, God is trying to change you. He is trying to change you. He wants us to move past our sin Uh, that is causing us such pain and so many problems. He wants us to move past our sins so that we can experience him fully. So he's trying to change us. But even that, even when he changes us, he changes us using his love for us. It's his love for us that motivates the change and the repentance in our heart. So this phrase tends to get it wrong. Um... Often when we say this, we get both sin and love wrong. This seems like a good place to uh, move to the other question, and that's this, how can we get it right? How can we get it right? If our motive really is to express that we love people even when we disagree with what they do, we just need to find a better way of doing that. Now, let me just pause a minute and let you know that is possible. That is possible. That is possible. In fact, we do that all the time. I can love someone without endorsing all of their life choices. One of our daughters used to get really upset and sometimes pretty difficult to deal with when things in her life, plans in her life would change suddenly. I remember one time her getting really upset because we had planned for about a week for one of her friends to come and have a sleepover at our house. And the day that she was supposed to arrive, her friend got the flu. And so the parents called and said, you don't want her to come over. And we said, you're right. We don't want her to come over. I mean, it was the flu. But when we told our daughter that her friend wasn't coming over, she got really upset. I mean, she cried for hours. She screamed about how unfair it was. It was a big ordeal. Now, we know that it was related to the death of our daughter, her sister, And as a result of that life experience, she didn't deal well with any kind of loss. And her friend calling and changing the plans was a loss to her. We understood all that. And we didn't endorse how she dealt with the loss. But in the process of it, we loved her completely. We loved her completely. And so it is possible. I mean, we do it all the time with other people. I mean, we don't endorse how they spend money or how they drive or how they eat or how they talk, but we still love them. So it is possible. But how can we get this love the sinner but hate the sin right? Well, I have a couple of suggestions. First, I can work on hating my sin. I can work on hating my sin. One of the big problems when we say love the sinner and hate the sin is we tend to use this for other people while ignoring our own sin. I mean, we tend to use this phrase for the sins that we would never commit. We, we tend to look at sins that horrify us, that disgust us, that we've never been tempted to commit, that, uh, we, that aren't even on our radar. And that's what we're pointing to when we say this. And while we're horrified and disgusted and trying to love the sinner while hating the sin, we're not even looking at our own sin that disgusts God, that horrifies God, that is keeping us away from God. We don't, we don't look at, we excuse the sins we commit every day. And the truth is, we just don't hate our sin enough. Most of us just generally don't hate our own sin enough. And that's part of the problem that's keeping us from really experiencing God's best. We need to focus on hating sin, but we need to focus on hating the sin we commit. My sin is keeping me at arm's length from God. My sin is causing me pain that I don't even realize, that I don't even acknowledge. My sin is a big deal, and my sin is where my focus ought to be. My sin is where my focus ought to be. After sinning with Bathsheba and arranging for her husband to be killed, David wrote this prayer in Psalm 51. God, be merciful to me because you are loving, because you are always ready to be merciful. Wipe out all my wrongs, wash away all my guilt, and make me clean again. I know about my wrongs, and I can't forget my sin. You are the only one I've sinned against. I have done what you say is wrong. You are right when you speak and fair when you judge how long has it been since you prayed a prayer like that about your own sin i think we get it right when we stop trying to monitor other people's sin and we start hating our own sin mark lowry said it this way love the sinner hate the sin how about love the sinner hate your own sin i don't have time to hate your sin there are too many of you Hating my sin is a full-time job. How about you hate your sin, I'll hate my sin, and let's just love each other. Isn't that a great plan? The second way that we can get it right is I can work on sincerely loving people. I can work on sincerely loving people. How can we sincerely love others? Let me give you three suggestions. First, make sure you love as a sinner. Make sure you love as a sinner. One of the problems when people say love the sinner but hate the sin is they're almost always pointing to someone else's sin. And when we sincerely love, we will love as a sinner. We will never forget that we are sinful people who love other sinful people. Here's what Jesus said about it in Matthew chapter 7. By the way, we don't catch all this, but this would have uh, caused people in the crowd when Jesus said this to go, he is just so funny. He is a comedian. Listen to what Jesus said. Why do you notice a little piece of dust in your friend's eye, but you just don't notice the big piece of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your friend, let me take that little piece of dust out of your eye. Look at yourself. You still have a big piece of wood in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the wood out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the dust out of your friend's eye. Now, this is an important passage when we're talking about loving others. And sometimes when, you, when people use this, they make it sound like if there's any failing, if there's any fault in my life, if there's any place where I don't quite measure up to what God wants, I can't possibly try to help somebody else overcome the problems in their life. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that's a right use of this passage. This doesn't mean that I can't try to help someone overcome a problem in their life uh, until I get my life perfect. It just means that I know about the problems in my life and I acknowledge my failings while trying to help others. I don't pretend that I can have clear vision when there's this big piece of wood in my eye. Loving as a sinner means I try to help you in your brokenness. I help you as a broken person who is also in the process of trying to overcome my own brokenness. Trust me, when you do it that way, it will show more love than when you try to pretend that you have it all together so make sure that you love as a sinner secondly make sure that you love people not sinners that you love people not sinner. part of the problems with this phrase love the sinner but hate the sin is it requires us labeling people it requires us to label people now of course it's true we are all sinners Of course it's true, we are all sinners. The Bible is clear on that. All of us have sinned. All of us have failed to live up to God's plan for us. But defining people by their sin seems like kind of a harsh thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, let's try this experiment for a minute. Look at the person next to you. Okay, go ahead, look at him. Okay, right now I want you to try to define them by their sin. Okay, don't tell them what you think it is. Okay, now here's the thing I want you to understand. While you're looking at them and trying to define them by their sin, someone's looking at you and trying to define you by your sin. Oh, you don't like that one, do you? I mean, right now your focus is completely off of what their sin is, and you're thinking, I wonder what that person's thinking about me. I I wonder what sin they're defining me by. I wonder if they know me well enough to know that some of my past might be the reason why some of that sin is so prevalent in my life, and that's not an excuse, but maybe they don't know me well enough to know that, and um, that's why I say it's just kind of harsh to define people by their sin. Here's the truth. We love people, and we judge sin. We love people, but we judge sin. When we practice love the sinner but hate the sin, we end up focusing much more on sin. We end up focusing much more on the label sinner than we do focus on love. Maybe that's why Jesus never said, Love the sinner. Jesus never said, Love the sinner. You know what he said? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. You see Jesus knew that if he commanded people to love the sinner that we would begin looking more at people as we would begin looking at people more as sinners than as neighbors more as sinners than fellow travelers on this earth so let's see each other as people and love each other as people because we love people and we judge sinners. My last suggestion is make sure your love is unmistakable. Make sure your love is unmistakable. That's my goal. That's my goal for the people that I am closest to. That's the goal that I have for my children and for my grandchildren and my wife, and that's my goal for each of you too. As your pastor, I want my love for you to be unmistakable. I want it to be unmistakable. And some of you don't know me very well yet. And um, that might take a while. And I have had people through the years who totally disagree with something that I believe or something that I teach, and that's fine. But even then, I want them to know that I truly love them, even if they don't like what I believe. And I've had some experiences where people I love have done some truly awful things some really awful things and they knew that I didn't agree with them that I never would have endorsed their actions I think of sitting in a jail looking at somebody that I love through that glass picking up the phone and talking to them and while we were talking we weren't talking about the awful things that they did We were talking about how much I love them. You see, I, I want my love to be unmistakable. Too often, we want to make sure that our convictions are unmistakable. We want to make sure that people understand what we believe. We want to make sure that people understand what is right and what is wrong, and our convictions are unmistakable. But our love is not seen at all. And um, when that is the case, we get it wrong. When our love shines through, we get it right. At Impact, we say that this is a place of grace built on a foundation of truth. And what we mean by that is we want to show God's love and God's acceptance to everyone who comes through our doors. We will welcome people who are involved in things that we know God wouldn't want them to be involved in. We will uh, accept and welcome people who are doing things that maybe are putting them on a path away from God rather than towards God. But we want to show them God's love and acceptance and his undeserved mercy. And we want to do that for everyone who comes through, but we are also going to teach The truth. That's what we mean when we say that this is a place of grace built on a foundation of truth. And sometimes they won't agree with the truth that we teach, and that's okay. If at the same time we can express to them God's love for them, and expressing the truth in love isn't always easy, but it's necessary if we want our love to be unmistakable. I mean, sometimes we need to love someone enough to express concern for some of the choices that they're making. And we will unpack that and how to do that in a loving way next weekend. But write this down. If you don't know them well enough to sincerely love them, you don't know them well enough to sincerely correct them. If you don't know them well enough to sincerely love them, you don't know them well enough to sincerely correct them. And if you think God has called you to correct or to critique people that you don't even know, you're misreading God. You're misreading what he's saying to you because God changes us through his love for us. And he uses us to change others only when we have a strong relationship of love with them. So as we draw this message to a conclusion, I hope that you and I will never again use the phrase, love the sinner but hate the sin. It just isn't in the Bible, and it usually gets both sin and love wrong. But, but I guess I should tell you that one person saw the title of this message, and they emailed me, and uh, they said, actually... This one is in the Bible, and then they sent me this verse. Here's the verse they sent from Romans 12. It says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourself. Now, this person doesn't live in this state, but here's my answer to that. Look at the verse again. Look at it later on in context. Read what comes before it and what comes after it. And when you do that, I think that you will see the entire section is about me taking action and responsibility for my own life. It's about me taking individual responsibility. And so I choose to believe that when it says hate what is evil, it's talking about what I need to do in my own life. It's uh, saying that I need to hate the evil in me. But even if you think this does give us license to hate the sin of others, did you notice twice in these verses it talks about love? Before and after it talks about hating what's evil. It says love must be sincere. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. The focus still has to be on love. And if love is going to be sincere, I cannot use slogans that make people feel unloved. I can't use slogans that make people feel judged. In closing I want to share with you a story from the life of Billy Graham. Some time ago, I read an interview with Billy Graham's oldest daughter, Gigi. And she talked about the time that she was her father's date to Time Magazine's 75th anniversary party. It was a banquet held in Washington, D.C. She said President Clinton spoke at the event, And he had just been impeached by the House of Representatives for perjury and for obstruction of justice. The charge of perjury involved what what President Clinton had said under oath about his relationship with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. And Gigi talked about how at the banquet her father sat with the president and with the first lady and he was warm and he was gracious to them. They talked and they laughed together. And after the dinner ended, Billy Graham and Gigi were riding back to their hotel. And the two discussed the difficulties the president and the first lady were going through with so many people talking about them, so many people uh, uh, gossiping about them and judging them. And Gigi said her father's simple comment was this, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, it's God's job to judge, and it's our job to love. Isn't that a great philosophy? It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. And it's our job to love. Friends, our love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. And honor one another above yourselves. I want to get this right. If you want to get this right, work on hating your own sin and work on sincerely loving others. Let's pray. Lord, may our love be unmistakable. Rather, may your love through us be unmistakable to everybody we meet. I mean, Lord, when we let you love us and love others through us, May people just be drawn to you. May they be drawn to your life-changing power. May their lives be changed because they experience your love. And Lord, may they experience it through us in unmistakable ways. And Father, thank you so much that even in the midst of our sin, you love us. Thank you, Father, that you want better for us. You want us to move past our sins so that we can experience your best. And so, Father, would you help us to just uh, relax in your love? Would you help us, Father, to hate our own sin enough to move past it? And then, Father, would you just help us become excellent at loving each other? In Jesus' name, amen.